out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome to the C86 Show. I'm David Esau. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Davy Woodward, one-time member of the Brilliant Corners and also the experimental pop band, but has recently become part of a uh, band which is titled Davy Woodward and uh, the Winter Orphans. He has just got a new album out titled Love and Optimism. This is going to be um, coming out on a turntable friend records. Um, This is the second album that he's brought out quite recently with the same kind of combo lineup. And, uh, but with a different record label. So after several minutes of very casual and interesting chat, as you do, uh, we got down to the subject that was, um, yes, what's been happening in the last five years and uh, the creative role of the artist. Who was there in the 80s in that golden period? That was the 80s indie pop scene, C86 and all that. But anyway, Davey, tell us what's been going on for you. I suppose, uh, I suppose it's a number of things. I... I mean, first of all, I, I never realised I would still be writing songs or even being interested in a band once I had got past the age of 30. I assumed that that was it, you know. I, that habit would be kicked. <laughs> you know, I grew, you know, I was in my 20s in the 80s in a band and, and then you still had that kind of hangover from the 60s or 70s where you thought, oh, well, once you're 30, you're a washed up musician. Yeah. So. To, to be continuing to make music now is uh, constantly surprises me, and I'm 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 never quite sure. Um, yeah, how that happens, I don't know. Why well, it, it's just happened, and I guess in the last five years, I think from uh, doing the corners reunion, then doing some stuff with Karen, I just felt there was a gap in in more reflective quiet stuff that I'd always listened to and maybe I hadn't quite fully realized on any of the bands and projects I've been in in the past yes yeah I think, well, yeah. well it's interesting because I've sort of having done this show for nearly four years mostly it has been sort of you know picking all these 80s bands but then having you know tra- tracked everyone a lot of people down everyone is still doing music. This is quite mm. a boggling thing. There's very few who've really said, no, I've managed to kick the habit. It's like, no, I still have to do it. I'm still, I still have that urge. I, even if they're just, you know, in the, you know, in the cupboard doing it on their own, they've still got this little urge to put something out on Bandcamp. But a lot of people, I think there is, I mean, you were quite different in the sense that you had the Brilliant Corners and then you had your the experimental, is it pop band group? Yeah. Um, so you kind of had a second, you had a whole second chapter, which was even bigger than mm. the first chapter, which is obviously the chapter that most people always go back to. Mm. So it's kind of interesting that, you, you know, you've still got your the, another chapter on from that. It does, uh, I mean, looking at people like the Iggy Pops and, and the people like Roland, the Rolling Stones, do you sort of think, well, in your mindset, you might have thought, I'm over 30, that's it, no way. Jose, but then sort of realising, well, actually, it's quite good fun and those guys are still doing it and they're still alive. Um, not, not so consciously of that. I mean, I've, I've thought about this quite a lot over the years and, and I think what kind of pop or rock and roll music 
it was quite in its infancy. If you look back at the history, you're talking late 50s, you know, the teenager invented the advent of rock and roll, Elvis, mm. etc. Then we have that amazing creative period during the, 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 the 60s where almost everything flourishes. Um, and I think, in, in a way, in terms of an art form, if we're, if we're allowed to call it an art form, it's still in its infancy. So anyone who was a consumer like me, uh, like most of us, I shouldn't say just me, like, like all of us, we grew up as this art form was developing. So, and I suppose one felt fell in the trappings of rock and roll is for young people. So you, so a lot of people are in bands, I think instinctively had this idea that, oh, well, you, you've got nothing to contribute when you get old because rock and roll is about youth. Yes. But it being a an art form in its infancy, it, it's, well, actually, no, I've got something to give. I'm a different person now. I can write about other experiences. I still love making music. I still love buying music. So in a way, I'm saying it's a kind of like, you know, if you were a painter, you wouldn't suddenly say, mm, I'm, you know, I'm 35 now, stopping painting. You're right. You don't say, mm, yeah, I've done my novels now. <laughs> but I think I because rock and roll and, and music and the idea of teenagers and young rebellious spirit being involved in music is um, it's still relatively new. You know, we're the, we're the generations that, 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 you know, that, that have grown with it. Uh, I think that gives us us people are involved in it longevity you know you you can have that and and we we shouldn't worry about it I think I worried about it when I was a kid but I don't worry yes. and I remember I think it was about 20 years ago there used to be the occasional journalist who would say oh it's terrible the Rolling Stones are still going they must stop and let young people through I think those journalists probably realize they're a bit embarrassed about what they wrote then Mm. books on it because it's a way it's like well who gave you the <laughs> the platform to say what Keith Richards or Mick Jagger or Iggy Pop should be doing you know if they want to keep mm. playing music it's not stopping young people I mean obviously they're going to be at the art centres and the small clubs and those guys are going to be somewhere else but they're not really eating in the same market and you know who cares you know I think that's it and the interesting because I'm in my mid-50s now so when we were when I was growing up in that especially that formative period in the early 70s Little did I know that, you know, when you were saying about the infancy of music, it was incredibly infant, wasn't it? You know, when, mm. when I was born, 64, you know, popular music had only, you know, in that form, had only start, had only been two years in existence, possibly mm. three. And you'd had, obviously, Little Richard and, um, you know, rock and roll and Elvis Presley. But, but then, you know, it's like, oh, yes, you know, that they, the Beatles had just split up when I became sort of aware of Gary Glitter and Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, pr precisely. So, so, so this is this is kind of new. What 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 do people who well the Rolling Stones you mentioned them, you know I think journalists have kind of said you know what what what's their relevance because unfortunately they they made quite a few naff albums in uh, over their time. I mean I really love early Rolling Stones stuff yes. and the seventies stuff, early seventies. But having said that, oddly enough. Um, may have been a couple of years ago um got hold of their their latest album which was a return to them playing authentic blues and and absolutely amazing you know the sound the the way they deliver it 
you know, they're absolutely amazing. So there's validation. It's just, I suppose, if, you, if you're around for a long time, you've just got to make the right choices and do things for the right reasons. And maybe a band like the Rolling Stones were doing it for the wrong reasons for a while, you know, a bit of a global franchise. Yeah. And so if they go back to what they love, um, they make an amazing album, you know. Yeah. And I get, and, and sort of thinking it through with, you know, you sort of still sticking with being an artist rather than thinking, no, I must put that away one day and stop doing it. You know, seeing people like David Bowie, who we probably grew up with so intensely, and thankfully that was my first single, Space Oddity, and then realising the work that he did, and some of it was, you know, pretty strange and not great, you know, especially the late 80s, 80s stuff, and then some of his drum and bass. But then, you know, he comes up with Black Star. So with you, you know, reflecting on your own life, as well as using music as well to express yourself, it must feel like, okay, again, David, you know, other people are opening the doors, but you must be feeling, oh yeah, that's that's still from okay for me to still continue on my path. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, you know, it, I just feel like, I just do what I do now, you know, and if I've got an opportunity to put stuff out by via small labels or or just on Bandcamp in itself, it it's gratifying if, if people respond to it. it. It's just a part of my life that I do. Um and yeah, the, 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 there's a history now, isn't there? People people have evolved, artists have evolved. Yes. And I think we will, you know, in you know, two, three, four hundred years time, they'll they'll probably be well. They're they're already running music courses in terms <laughs> of art, music yeah. history. But imagine how rich that's going to be, you know, in the future. Um, you know, rock and roll music will be, yeah, it will it will be up there with the classics, won't it? In terms of our yes. Learning. Absolutely, yeah. that 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 sort of chapter. We, we bizarrely, though we don't really remember probably much about the sixties, realised that actually being born in the early sixties, we were very close to to that point, and probably watched the Beatles films if nothing else. But mm. but sort of coming back to the new album, this is on a turntable friend, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yugi, who bizarrely, I was doing an interview with a member of Candy Opera yesterday, who's also on a turntable friend. Mm. So that must feel like a more of a validation than just plowing on on your own sort of furrow uh definitely definitely you know it's always great if you've got someone who runs a label and they 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 really like music and they want to take those kind of financial risks to press up you know a, a, a few hundred lovely white vinyl and a nice <laughs> with lyrics it's it, it's great it's great to have vinyl coming out out there and um yeah i think i think you know we all we all want some kind of validation and, and it helps to be on a label i think yes i know that that's always good and with the the album it was tinges and you might say no it's not but Bob Dylan, do you have you have did you consume a lot of Bob Dylan recently, or have you? <laughs> no, not recently. Um, Bob Dylan's been a strange one for me because I I um I kind of have this theory that you don't understand Bob Dylan until you're a bit older. So again, growing up in the sixties and seventies, I should have got Bob Dylan when I was fourteen, but I didn't. I was a bit like years into David Bowie and glam rock. Didn't understand yeah. Bob Dylan at all. Then I should have got Bob Dylan when I was in my late teens. Still didn't get get him. But 
I suppose, strangely enough, around about the time the Brilliant Corners started putting out our first singles, I got Bob Dylan in a huge, huge way. And oddly enough, if you, you know, even some one of our B-sides, Tangled Up in Blue, that's the title of a Bob Dylan song. At the time, no one <laughs> saw the connection there, but um, that single is is a direct title of a Dylan song. So I, I kind of fell in love with his music, yeah, around about when I was 22, 23. Uh, and he's kind of always been there, kind of in the background. Right. And I know when... A few people who heard the debut album and this current album, maybe. I, I suppose it's maybe, you know, the classic singer-songwriter. If if you ha- haven't got nods to Dylan, yes, there's something missing. I think it was Blood on the Tracks and the one with Like a Rolling Stone. They were the two albums when mm. it was like, oh yes, actually, I get. You know, I don't know if I get Bob Dylan, but I definitely got those two albums, and uh, yeah. you know, they were the ones that I kind of played for several years quite con- consistently because they were just kind of amazing so I you know and it's always been a curious but I just kind of listened to the album that you, you know it's just coming out sort of thinking I don't know if it was the vibe or that there was a harmonica or something that felt quite Dylan-esque in its kind of um, mm. essence and I thought oh that's interesting. I think maybe yeah I think any you know if you've got acoustic guitars and, and harmonicas the, the, there's always that sort of folky Dylan thing but maybe what you're hearing David is also the fact that the the way we recorded it in that there's a lot of live playing you know I I all the singing on that is one continuous take while bands are playing and that's how Dylan recorded all his greatest albums you know you'd go in the studio and you do take after take after take until Hey, that's the one that captured the moment. And yes. with this album, that that's exactly what we did. So I'm I'm really happy with the way the um the vocals came out. So I think it caught a certain mood or emotion that, that yes. had eluded me on previous recordings. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, doing things live does make it a lot more urgent and having sort of talked talk to a few producers who've done bits and pieces and actually it was um a guy called Mark Saunders, who suddenly found himself, you know, doing that charity single with uh, David Bowie and Mick Jagger one evening and into the ne- next morning. And, and the fact that they had to do it also immediately and they just had to get it all done. And he was quite a young kid at the time thinking, oh, my God, I'm not sure if I should be trusted doing this, but I better say yes and keep going with it. You know, so it was, yeah, that that kind of urgency and, and you know, remembering stories about people like Black Sabbath, whose first album was just done in an afternoon. And it's like, because they've been playing it live so much, it was like, well, actually, we can just bash this out and it's done. So you have that rawness, whereas some albums, you know, you've just, you know, they've had the Brian Eno production, then they've gone to Berlin, then then back to New York. And you think, what the hell are they doing? It's such a, mm. it's such a pickle. So, so with writing it, did it sort of come together much easier, sort of when you were sort of from your first album to this one? Did, did the sort of process of it sort of making the album flow better? I think what, yeah, I think the first album we were fine in the studio, uh, but that was more urgent in a way in that the band barely knew the songs and I just kind of went in and said, let's just do it. But with this one, we'd done a few gigs over the year. So we kind of road tested some of the songs 
so there was a more sure sure footing you know to go in and uh not put ourselves in too much of a precarious situation where on take 98 comes yes. with one you know i've forgotten the words or you know steve's forgotten to hit the drum at the right point so there was that confidence in there but um yeah you know the, the what you mentioned with you know black sabbath or bands like the kinks like recorded you know masterpieces in like three days there yeah. i i'm certainly not poo-pooing technology i've used technology a lot in my time and there, i think there's a place for both kinds of approaches it's just at this moment in time having lived in that world of overdubbing vocals layering you know really listening to all the minutiae of the timing and whatever over the years particularly in the experimental pop band i i just it's just it's quite joyous just to be with some guys playing music like you might yeah. just plug in on a bar and you play and you capture a mood so it is it is retrogressive in a way <laughs> but but progressive in that it captures it captures something that i don't think i fully captured in recordings before right even with the brilliant corners because that because obviously there would be more of an urgency probably with more of a you know a schedule of things to do people saying look we need the album we need the single you got this mm. and also being young probably that was the 24 7 kind of focus in your life so i just wondered how you were feeling and kind of as uh, emotionally now doing this album compared to that those kind of times during the say the 80s i think with the Brilliant Corners is we we worked incredibly hard, although it was great, we were, we were in our 20s and we were, um, yeah, we were partying and doing all, all the things young people shouldn't be doing, but I think um, we used to rehearse a lot. We would rehearse two, three times a week, and then when we did tours and we played an awful a lot, songs were honed through through gigs, through rehearsals, we were really diligent in our recording as well. You know, we, we'd, we'd go in and even if we might have been spending two or three days in a studio, um, we knew those songs inside out to a degree. Although the whole recording process was incredibly frightening because none of us actually knew how a studio worked and you're, yes. you're, you're, you're worrying about how much money you're spending and why does the guitar sound out of tune? Oh, that's because you've never really tuned it up. <laughs> <laughs> all those, we had all those pitfalls, all those discoveries. Um, but I think back then, um, there's that youthful enthusiasm and energy, but sometimes you don't quite know where you're at. I mean, that, you know, you, you definitely capture a lot on those songs and on those recordings. They're, they're, they're moments in time that capture a mood yes. and where you're at. And that's how every recording should be capturing you at that time. I suppose what's different now is that, you know, much older, um, I've got other things I want to still want to say, but I'll say it in a different way. But I think I'm probably more sure of expressing myself either vocally or musically you know it isn't like i guess you know i can do, i can do what i want to do really david you yes. know right? and, <laughs> and there's no constructs there isn't like a a label saying 
the guys that that Brian Ricks, if you can write another song like that, that would be uh, keep, keep writing that song ten times. You know, there yeah. isn't that. You know, which is great. I mean, do you? I mean, when you sort of can reflect on your sort of the whole sort of career in music and bring it up to date, does it does it sort of feel like such a different person who was writing those materials, that material back then to how you feel now? Or can you sort of really relate to that that kind of that world as well as the sort of experimental pop group and 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 uh, yes, up to sort of the first solo album? I I can relate to elements of it, but I'm um I'm surprised how much I forget and then when I meet people who were around at that time and and you might reminisce about tours you were doing or places you were and I think oh yeah I do remember that now and and but but the feelings do come back I think I think really the the, the constant throughout all the bands I've been in is you know were the humanness of it. It, it, a lot of it's about our relationships with each other. It's the, it's the human element. And I think, I think that doesn't change whatever age you are. You can be 15, you can be 25, 40, 60 or 80. We're still looking at, you know, the, the, the humanness of, of where we're at. And comp- <laughs> you're going to kill me. I'll, I'll let that go. <laughs> I know modern technology. Hey, it's radio. You can it's, have stuff like that. <laughs> I know. That's, that's all very relaxed, isn't it? Yes, because obviously it, it must feel quite strange to sort of see you've got more, you know, like this body of work now that may, must make you feel a bit more self-conscious about wanting to continue that journey as well as, you know, thinking, yes, I'm just going to trade on my... 80s period or my 90s period but thinking mm. actually now I can sort of call myself an artist because I'm still doing it and I'm going to probably still keep doing it and I just just kind of realized that there were were there times you know especially in the 80s where you felt like god we're going to get found out here this 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 is just you know you know the producer's going to look at us and and I'm going to I'm going to I'm just going to crumble I think in the 80s there was still a power differential in that people who ran studios and had bands like us coming in like we were still novices we didn't understand how you actually recorded you you kind of were in a in a lot of uh, ways kind of you certainly weren't perceived as an artist it's just like oh these guys they can't even play <laughs> it's like that kind of attitude why don't why can't they play and then occasionally you might meet an enlightened engineer or producers we work with who 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 saw beyond that okay so their timing isn't great they still need to tune their guitars up but they've got great songs they've got good attitude and when they actually make it happen it captures something but there you could almost talk to any indie or alternative band in you know, the 80s and perhaps even in the kind of early 90s, they, they, they would definitely tell you that you did feel intimidated in the studio. And if you feel intimidated in that environment, it's really hard to produce your best work. So there was, there's always been a trade-off, I think, for bands in a studio. Um, and then you come kind of full circle to now most bands can record in their bedrooms or their garages on a laptop. Yeah. And 
there's indeed a trade-off to that because then maybe you're you're too bunker in the bunker and you and you and you need someone from outside saying mm, hang on you know you still haven't learned how to tune your guitar <laughs> <laughs> i know this is this is this must be kind of the, the great because we had those kind of gatekeepers you know the john peel the the weekly music papers which you know we take for granted but talking to people from america they go god you had all three weekly music papers that were just mm. you know reviewing this stuff and all this kind of slightly underground stuff that you know is all alternative as we like to call it and that yeah. that just gave everybody that immediacy that you know you could put that single out and it would just get reviewed straight away you didn't have to you were never going to get you know reviewed in the rolling stone magazine were you or any of those kind of big glossy monthlies which are all very planned and it's going to be probably billy joel and bruce springsteen mm. and michael jackson or prince whereas you know having that circulation and, and that amount of um yes exposure but you know the gatekeepers had sort of you know given us such a lot of um yes material and the interesting thing was and i suppose that's what happened as well recently and i you must have come across it that that one slightly looks back without it being you know rose tinted sunglasses but then seeing these kind of documentaries being made on people like the, the sort of the wedding presents george best or the go-betweens or the chills or the slits or um the dolly mixtures you know and 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 suddenly thinking actually this kind of throwaway indie pop suddenly has a little bit more like oh actually when you go back to it again there's a little bit more to it than one kind of appreciated at the time it felt quite ephemeral didn't it mm. well i think i think the idea of it being indie pop or jangly music again was a kind of a journalistic um tagline in, in a lot of ways um because my recollection particularly of the late 70s and the 80s in the music press as you say we had three weeklies and that kind of meant that I, I guess the editorial felt to keep people engaged things had to be invented at the rate of knots so in in this country in particular you know that build a band up knock them down yeah it, almost on a weekly basis you there was another kind of youth youth culture or tribe you had to follow that was that month's big thing next month's big thing which when you go abroad you you, you don't have you didn't have that so much people were much more open-minded about what they listened to it wasn't a, a rate of turnover and i think the indie scene is actually a very very broad umbrella of of like-minded people influenced I, I suppose the common denominator might be a love of certain kind of 60s music coupled with an appreciation of punk rock and post-punk mm. uh, those seem to be the common uh, commonalities in the music but i think in that idea of it be c86 or indie or anorak those then become useful monikers to 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 to, to cover a, what is actually a much wider range of music than most people think. I think that's what I'm trying to say, really. Yes. I, I don't think it's just down the rabbit hole of one thing. It's actually a much broader kind of music, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it was a bit of a derogatory term in some circles. And then, it's, then it kind of became quite confusing in the 90s where you got these indie bands that, you know, were a bit like Oasis, I suppose. And that was like, well, that isn't my feeling of indie. I suppose it was much more the quirky, mm. 
the, the more sort of quirky and you know odd stuff that happened and you did have bands like stunt big flame and uh, bog shed who were just very odd indeed you know they were yeah. obviously not going for longevity and then you got a sort of a different David, is it all right to take this call yes, absolutely i'm just going to quickly call back I'll be yeah with that's you. fine sorry about that david it's really really um unprofessional of me <laughs> that's fine it's just just life i mean let's face it we all we all know that um i don't know last week the gutters oh. were locked and the trains were sort of slightly backing up and you know, <laughs> yeah. you, know you you have to roll with it don't you let's face it absolutely so on the new i just do um because god knows where we were on that one but the new album Production yeah. and producer, just quickly, you know, because I'm always kind of curious because I suppose I've done quite a few interviews with, you know, producers recently. And it's been kind of quite interesting to hear their take on, on the world that is recording. And um, most of them are OK. A few obviously have said, I don't want to talk about that. Ooh, wish you would. But never mind. <laughs> so what was, you know, with your experience back in the 80s, but sort of especially currently, how do you, you know, do you manage to sort of get somebody who gets the band? Yeah, it's kind of um, a lot of it's trial or error. But um, Joe, Joe Garcia, who produced and recorded this album, he did our debut album, and I came across Joe. Um, gosh, I don't know, several years ago, just doing kind of a, a, a little bit of odd, kind of what you might call demoing type recording, and um, he does a lot of work with live work with. Um, acoustic kind of acts, folk acts. He's very much, uh, he, one side of him really loves getting a natural sound and another part of him is into almost that kind of noise rock where you're, you're complete, your ears are obliterated. But I think you just have to find someone who's got a sensitivity to what you're doing, but a technical know-how, how to capture it. And what Joe's got is he's got the technical know-how of how, how to record an acoustic guitar with everybody else playing at the same time. Right. And it not to bleed over too much and a manner about him that lets you kind of do what you want to do without feeling uh, under any kind of pressure or making you repeat parts endlessly and, uh, you know, going down that wormhole of, oh, I heard a little sound on that and how can we get eradicate that sound? And you know, what sound's that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> hang on, what are, you, what are you hearing? What I'm hearing, you know, that you must have had bands who have had endless conversations with you we talk about being in studios and just listening to tracks again and again and the producer saying well it's not quite right and them thinking i don't even know what you're hearing <laughs> so yes. um, so the good thing is um i think in more recent years engineers or producers kind of have kind of left things up to my own judgment to a lot and i'm more confident about making judgments about how a song should sound or where it should go. But on this album, we really benefited from Joe's experience of um, touring with live bands and, and having that technical skill to have separation and yes. 
tech stuff. He's good at tech stuff as he's well. Got, he's got the business. And did you ever, with with this project or any of your previous ones, have you ever worked with any you know, producers who've sort of said, actually, this isn't quite working. Do you want to try something else? Or have you thought about doing this? Or has it always been quite, you know, a separate relationship with your, you know, producers? Um, not to the extent where, you you know, in the, the, the old meaning of producer was exactly as you described it where you'd have someone who'd be listening to you rehearsing and they might look at and change an arrangement or suggest playing a different tempo start with the chorus rather than the verse that you know that that kind of thing i've never really had a, a producer like that the closest coming to it would be john parish um, from pj harvey band he he was much more of a listen and make suggestions but i think for uh, for me it, it's more we we would record stuff and then sometimes you'd listen back and you just think it just hasn't worked i i must have tons of songs to shelve that will never see the light of day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so whole albums in fact <laughs> so um, triple quadruple albums like Prince yes so so is it the case then just lastly I mean when you're doing you know the the creative you know songwriting bit is are there moments where you know you've slaved away and then it gets the green light and you think god oh, that is that is good that I don't you know we can just sprinkle some fairy dust and it's away or sometimes you just think I just need to put that in the bin and move on I think uh you know, in the last decade or few decades, I can say bin it or keep it. It's 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 down to me. I think in when I first started recording music, and you might have had extra pressures, like say with the Green Corners, if you'd, um, you know, we were regularly getting kind of indie top ten uh, chart placings, and then you sort of think, well, that you know that last song. It, sounded like this should we make the next song sound like that you almost put a kind of your own commercial pressures on yourself actually because yeah. we, we never really had like we put we self-financed all our own uh singles we weren't on a label we didn't have a manager or any of that stuff so it was a, almost like a self um pressure we put on ourselves and I and I've been free of that for a long time. I suppose the last time I felt that pressure was with the experimental pop band and being on City Slang. Yeah. And again, that was a label who would, you know, they lovely, amazing alternative label, but they still were a record label who put pressures on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. that was tricky. And just and just lastly, I mean, if you could say something to a an eighteen year old self starting out in this kind of interesting kind of a career path which sometimes might need another job mm. what, what would you sort of just kind of whisper in their ear as they were embarking or you wish someone had said to you back then you know if you could say oh look mate this is this is what I would just sort of have a just keep your eye on this or think about doing that I think it would be something along the lines of um you know enjoy, enjoy the moments enjoy it as much as you can and don't agonize over things so much that, that that would block the enjoyment of you playing live or recording um because i think once you set yourself free of those internal pressures 
And when you're young, you're full of angst and internal pressures. When you're old, you're full of internal pressures, but maybe not angst. (laughs) And so so you rid yourselves of those. Enjoy the moment. I would would always say you enjoy the moment. Yes, quite a lot of people have said that, actually. And are you hoping, if you can, play any live dates? I'd love, we'd love to play live. Um, It's just the situation. Yes. (laughs) When things change, then we'll definitely look, look to playing live because you know in terms of what we do you know with 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 the winter orphans it's very it's geared to playing live you know it's very intimate kind of music so it 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 really benefits from seeing us play live yes i know that would be great actually Mm. and do you ever just briefly do you ever sort of put any of your old material do you put any of that through as well when you're when you're on stage i have done I've, i've played the odd corners tune um you know growing up absurd i think i've played live uh, with with the guys um i occasionally do strange cover versions of famous songs like beatles tunes do it in my own peculiar way (laughs) um so occasionally uh, there's a bit of a curveball it's a good entertaining evening yeah yeah excellent well look davy well, David, um, this has been great. Well, thank you ever so much. And relax. Anyway, that is going to be the end of the interview. Um, a big thank you to Davy Woodward for giving me the time for that interview. Um, yes, there was an interruption halfway through, but that is just what showbiz is all about. Anyway, um, this has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. It's there. And what else? Yes, all these shows have been archived. Yes, indeed. Um, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check it out. There's hundreds of them. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.